Thank you so much. Good morning. Zechariah chapter 6. Love for you if you haven't already done so. Now, to turn there, <clears throat> because what you are looking at is a prophecy that was given by a 5th century B.C. prophet that has so much to do about the significance of not only what Christ did, Bethlehem via Calvary, but also what Christ is doing now and what Christ will eventually do. It is probably the pinnacle of the promises of the Old Testament with regard to Jesus Christ coming into this world. And so we've looked at those verses, verse 9 down to verse 15. Now let's look to our Lord in prayer. And fathers, we're coming into your presence. We are coming here knowing that Jesus Christ is the risen one. The Lord, the Savior. That in eternity past, a covenant was established between the members of the Godhead and that the second member of the Trinity would enter into this world. And that generation after generation anticipated the fulfillment of that promise. And then it happened. Yet so many overlooked it. And even today, so many are overlooking it. And the promises that were fulfilled in Bethlehem were a means of continuously guiding by the working of the Holy Spirit, the second member of the Trinity, to Calvary. And from that cross to an empty tomb, to an ascension, to be seated at the right hand of God, to return. And what we want to do is to take the Bethlehem story and see how it stretches from eternity past to eternity future, and how it fits in with what we are experiencing and facing even right now. Not only globally, but also individually here. Whether it be that student home from college, whether it be the parent who's got a lot on their minds as we approach that Christmas day, whether it's the pressure of people at work to get things done so that they can truly have quality time together, but more importantly, for the person who comes here with questions. Legitimate questions. Intellectually oriented, but nonetheless hungry to be able to find something that they can hold on to and say, this makes sense in the midst of the chaos of this world. Speak to that mind and speak to that heart. Speak to the lonely one here. Speak to the aloneness in our midst here. Because it's possible to feel lonely and yet not be alone. So Lord, what we want to do is to allow for your verses to penetrate our minds and our hearts as we allow your word to speak to where we're at. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here again now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Arno Gabeline was a Jewish Christian. He had a powerful ministry in New York City. Early in his ministry, he was challenged one day by Samuel Goldstein, a Hebrew Christian. He was a member of his church. And noting the pastor's many Hebrew books in his study, he said, you know, it's a shame that you do not make greater use of your knowledge. You should go and share the gospel with the Jews. I believe that the Lord made you to take up these studies because he wants you to reach my brethren, the Jewish people. Out of that challenge was the beginning of a remarkable ministry, the biographer tells us, in New York City and beyond, where hundreds of Jewish people came to saving faith, having put their trust in Messiah, Jesus. After his book, Studies in Zechariah, was published, Gabeline sent a copy to every rabbi in New York City, the biographer goes on to say. But there was no response from any of the rabbis in New York. However, sometime later, a young Hebrew Christian began to attend one of Gabeline's meetings regularly. And it turned out the secretary was a secretary to a well-known rabbi. The rabbi had thrown studies in Zechariah into the wastebasket. But the secretary had rescued it, read it, and trusted Jesus as Messiah. Now, when you and I begin to ponder the significance of what God does... He desires to take that which other people would dismiss or toss aside and allow for the words that pertain to Jesus to penetrate hearts in the most unexpected ways. And as a result, that secretary in turn led countless Jewish people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so it can be likewise, though the gospel may be pushed aside by one person, where it's pushed aside, someone else picks it up and realizes this is true and works with it. Now there is truth in what we are looking at in this passage today, written five centuries prior to the coming of Jesus Christ to Bethlehem. And what we're going to do is to inch in to the descriptions of Jesus Christ that are found here, But as we inch in, notice that in verse 9 of the 6th chapter of Zechariah, that this is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord, we are told, came to me, speaking of Zechariah. Doesn't it say that there? And what I want you to see now is a precursor to what was about to take place five centuries later in Bethlehem. There in verse 10, we are informed, take from the exiles... Heldei, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Bethlehem and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Five centuries Prior, this man writes, to the story of Bethlehem, 
We've got travelers from the east who are bringing gifts in order for the crowning of one who is meant to be king. Hmm. Do you see the precursor to the Bethlehem story wrapped around that particular verse written five centuries earlier describing these that come from Babylon, which is thought to be the region where the wise men of the story that is found in Matthew came. Now, here we are, and we've got these individuals who are informed that take them from them silver and goat and make a crown. Circle the word crown. In the Hebrew, the word crown is in the plural, not the singular. And you say, but Gary, why is that so significant? Look very carefully now at who is about to get crowned. Set it on the head of Joshua. The New Testament name for Joshua is Jesus. Set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. At this point, you're going to get pushback from the Jewish community. Because you see, a crown is meant to be placed upon one who is of the tribe of Judah. That's the royal line. This individual, Joshua the high priest, is of the line of Levi. And you don't allow the lines to get confused. Therefore, the natural tendency of the Jewish readers to say, wait a second here, you are mixing the lines. But didn't we just begin reading that this was the word of the Lord? Evidently, then, there is to be a crowning of this one who is the high priest. What do we make of that? And is God violating the promise that he had given of the fact that this royal one to come, Messiah, is of the line of David. It is part of the royal line. We're going to answer that question. Because what we're going to do now is to draw out five significant descriptions of Jesus, your Jesus. And those five significant descriptions of Jesus are found primarily in just two verses that we're going to explore now together. Just two verses. But if we get a hold of the fact that this is a promise of five centuries before, and it pertains to the one who came into Bethlehem to die on Calvary, this is going to add layers of faith to the dimension of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Check them out. The first description is found at the beginning of verse 12. It appears on the screen. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Behold the man, you see here, whose name is the branch. Now notice very carefully with me that it says the man. And you say, but Gary, what is that so significant? Well, remember now that what God has sovereignly done in eternity past is that he has designated the second member of the Trinity to take on flesh. So we are going to have 100% humanity and 100% divinity, two natures in one person. So now it says the men. But the man whose name is the branch. And you say, well, Gary, now I look at that 
And what is so significant about that? Off to the side in your, in your Bible, off to the side of that phrase, whose name is the branch, would you jot down for me 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. Because what we are saying is that the branch is part of the family tree. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5, in David's final days, it, said, it says, For does not my house, speaking of his family line, stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper. See that word prosper? All my help and my desire. The word prosper means literally to bring to fruition, to sprout, to branch out. In other words, what God is now saying here is that there's this family tree. And out of the family tree will come forth this branch. And this branch is the branch that God now is identifying for the reader to understand that this is one of the line of David. Sometime, take a Bible concordance and begin to work through the usage of the word, the title, branch, in your Old Testament as it relates to Jesus. Let me just give you a few Think about them, look them up on your own, and worship God as you do so. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, he's referred to as the branch of David. In Zechariah 3, verse 8, speaks of my servant, the branch. So that when Jesus said, I've come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many, He's identifying with the idea of being my servant, God's servant, who did the will of the Father, the branch, you see. In Zechariah 6.12 that we're looking at right now, the man whose name is the branch. And in the Isaiah 4 verse 2 passage, speaks of the branch of the Lord, meaning one of the same kind, which means then you've just tied humanity and divinity together Two natures in one person. It was a college course in environmental science. I was a biology chemistry major. Environmental science was not my, what do you call it, cup of tea. Give me physiology, give me anatomy, but not environmental science. But we had to take it, I took it, and I remember there was this midterm exam, and in the midterm exam, the prof said at a certain point, I want you to pause now, walk over aisle by aisle, and there lay on a table this branch, you see. And my responsibility, as all the other students were as well, was to be able to identify that branch and from what stock it came. Was it oak? Was it pine? What was it? And then continue on with the exam. Now, what God is saying through Zechariah at this point is that I want God's people, all people, to identify the branch. I want us to be able to understand the the family tree of David and to see how all this fits together. Now, if you're a parent with small children, grandparents, small children, if you're going to be a parent to be that kind of thing, you reach that point, as we alluded to last week, where... 
And I did this with our children at various points in time when they were young. But I would lift them up and allow them to place an ornament on the very top branch. The very top branch on our Christmas tree right now is a star. And what I began to do is to tell the story of the promised branch that comes from the line of David, the family tree, and how the star of Bethlehem guided the wise men. And do you see the precursors to the wise men right here in that verse? Five centuries prior. They were guided to Bethlehem asking in Jerusalem, where is he born king of the Jews? They are bearing gifts. Does this sound familiar five centuries prior? So you're weaving this story together now, and you're utilizing this star that is placed upon the highest branch. As you now tell the story of promise from the Old Testament to the New, that God promised that all this would take place. And so they moved, these wise men do, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, looking for this one born, king of the Jews. Do you realize then that the time will come when Jesus will reverse this and he will move from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to die in our place for our sins? You see. Now, you begin to weave all of this together and you understand that we are dealing with a family tree. We are dealing with the branch. We are dealing with the decorated branch, the one who three days later was so decorated, so distinguished, you can identify the promised one, the branch, because he is raised from the dead. Behold, he says, the man whose name is the branch. And those four passages that I just told you about, referring to Jesus as the branch in the Old Testament, deal with both his humanity as well as divinity, two natures in one person, so that when he came to Bethlehem, he was so designed, perfectly engineered, to die on Calvary, because only God could pay the penalty. Only man should pay the penalty. You need the could and the should wrapped up together in both divinity and humanity, so you've got the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins, and that's why you needed a virgin birth. And so now, out of this beginning of verse 12, you've already got the precursor for the wise men arriving on the scene. And you've got this crowning event that's about to take place, being promised. And we are guided then to the second incredible description. You are still in verse 12. And the second description that emerges out of these verses is that for he shall branch out from his place. Now, what God is saying is, out of this family tree will be the ultimate branch that you and I know as Jesus Christ. And this will not only be within the precincts of Israel, but will branch out globally and have high impact for God's glory. In other words, you can't confine Jesus. And don't even try. Because the gospel is expensive. The gospel has a way of getting to places other people would write off, like a book in a wastebasket, or like the islands of Fiji. James Calvert illustrates this. Calvert and his wife, the biographer, tells us, were appointed by the Wesleyan Missionary Society 
to serve as missionaries in Fiji. They arrived in that island in the South Seas, and as they began intensive language study, began a circuit, as the Methodists tend to do, to various villages in Fiji and the surrounding islands, sharing the good news of Jesus. Quote, At last there came the day for which Mr. Calvert had worked, longed, prayed. While mission agencies had written off that setting, on April 30th, 1854, the chief ordered that the death drums be now used to call the people together to worship the true God. What was their joy to see more than 300 wending their way in dance form to the large stranger's house. And among them was the great chief with his many wives and children. It was a memorable sight as they now knelt in adoration of the sovereign God. Three years later came another milestone. In 1857, the king after dismissing his many wives with all their wealth and influence, was baptized. Before his court, his ambassadors, his people, he stood up and humbly confessed his former sins and embraced Jesus as his Savior and Lord. One thousand hearts throbbed in excitement, the biographer goes on to say, as they listened in awe and astonishment to this king who had slain their husbands, their children. And now what was he saying? That he's a sinner? And that God has singularly preserved his life? Why, he said, I desire to acknowledge him as the only and true God. Following his retirement, Calvert returned to Fiji in 1885 to celebrate the Jubilee of Christianity where there was not a single Christian in 1835, there was not an avowed heathen in 1885. He found over 1,300 churches, the vast majority of them led by native pastors now, and evangelists. And most amazing of all was that out of a population of 116,000, more than 104,000, were regularly attending services weekly, worshiping the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, part of the family tree of David, promised by God, an everlasting covenant. And what happens? The gospel branches out to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. And the Magi, who are Gentiles, Gentiles are coming from the east, bearing gifts just like this precursor informs us, prepping us for the idea with the use of the ornamentation of placing upon that one's head the crown, designating, signifying the fact that he is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords, the crown, you see. But you know that when Jesus Christ was about to go to that cross, 
Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. In John chapter 19, verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You see, they mocked him. They looked at him cynically. But in that final day in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what have we said so far? We've been camped on just one verse, haven't we? Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Secondly, for he shall branch out from his place. But now a third description. And believe it or not, we're still in verse 12. Because then it goes on to say, thirdly, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, if you have the opportunity, have had the opportunity of traveling to Israel and reaching a point when you are standing on the Mount of Olives, where he ascended, of course, into heaven, will someday return, and you look down upon the landscape, you're going to see the Dome of the Rock and the mosque, El-Aqsa, just to the south of the dome. And you're going to say to yourself, but something is missing here. Something's been discarded. What is it? The temple. The temple. Where's the temple? Solomon had built a temple. But then the Babylonians had destroyed the temple. Nebuchadnezzar was the leader of the Babylonians. His title was was Lord of Hosts, Lord of the Armies. Now, Zerubbabel and, furthermore, Joshua, New Testament name would be Jesus. Joshua the high priest, responsible for energizing the people to rebuild the temple. But then in 70 AD, the Romans will come along as they did and destroy the temple. Two temples thus far. And yet what you and I are being informed here in this particular verse, and he, speaking of Jesus, he shall build the temple of the Lord. There have been times where my Jewish friends have invited me to join them in a synagogue. I've gone. I want to keep learning in life, don't you? And so... I noticed that there is a daily synagogue prayer known as the Prayer of the Eighteen Benedictions. And the 18th begins with these words. Be pleased, Lord our God, with thy people Israel, and with their prayer, restore the worship of thy most holy sanctuary. What are they talking about? That future temple. Now, the Jewish people became highly excited when in 1967, Israeli troops moved into the old city and conducted what's known historically now as the Six-Day War. 
And some Jewish paratroopers occupied the Temple Mount as the Israeli military dropped down on the Temple Mount and flew the Israeli flag. But I remember it still. Moshe Dayan had that flag then removed because of the turmoil and the conflict that was about to produce. But if you and I had the privilege right now of going on an archaeological walk and moving about in what is now known as the Rabbi's Tunnel, we would find that there is a gate uncovered down below beneath the surface that originally led to the Temple Mount from the western time of the second temple. And this western gate was directly opposed to the eastern gate across the platform. And it means then that the Dome of the Rock was built some 150 feet south of the original site of the temple, which means that very frankly then, the Dome of the Rock does not need to be destroyed for the third temple to be built. And now the architectural plans have been laid out and there is a movement towards rebuilding. So whether some sort of peace accord is going to eventually be established by the Antichrist to allow both Islam and the Temple of Israel to coexist for a short period of time is hard to say. But what we see here unfolding in front of our very eyes is the God who can take the past, the present, and the future, connect the dots, and allow a 5th century B.C. prophet to begin to articulate something that makes incredible sense in the midst of the chaos and the confusion and the conflict of today's society as it relates to the tensions of the Middle East, which has an awful lot to do with an 8-year-old who wants to fish. You see, out of a Reader's Digest article some years ago, I clipped this out, where eight-year-old Frank had looked forward to weeks to this Saturday because his father had promised to take him fishing if the weather was suitable. And they hadn't had any rain for weeks, and as Saturday approached, Frank was confident of the fishing trip. Wouldn't you know it? Saturday morning dawned, it was raining heavily, it appeared that it would continue all day, and Frank wandered around the house, peering out the windows, grumbling more than a little. It seems like the Lord would know that it would have been better to have had the rain yesterday than today, he said to his father, who had his Bible on his lap and was reflecting on God's word. Now his father tried to explain to Frank how badly the rain was needed, how it would make the flowers grow bring much-needed moisture to the farmer's crops. But Frank was adamant, this just, this ain't right, he said, over and over. But then about three o'clock, the rain stopped. Still time for some fishing. And quickly, the gear was loaded, and they were off to the lake, and whether it was the rain or some other reason, the fish were biting hungrily, and father and son returned with a full string of fish. Supper. And when some of the fish were ready, Frank's mom asked him to say grace, and Frank did. And as he concluded his prayer, he did so with these words, and Lord, and he sighed. And Lord, if I sounded grumpy earlier today, it was because I couldn't see far enough ahead.
Zechariah wants you and me who are reading this 5th century B.C. promise to be able to see far enough ahead to see out of this stock of David comes this family tree and you've placed the ornament upon that head branch and you're telling the story to others in your living room of the promise that God made and how all this relates to the Magi and the so on. And you're connecting the dots for them. And then you carry on in your own thought processes and say to yourself, my word, even that second temple that was ultimately destroyed by the Roman Empire doesn't thwart God's plan. Because God promised that his Messiah would build this temple, which means there is more to come. And it leads us to this fourth description. And finally, you made it into verse 13. And in verse 13, out of this fourth description, notice the wording here, and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne And now we've got these travelers from the east, 5th century B.C. prophet, who's already speaking of such things as a precursor of what was to come, and they are looking for the one born king of the Jews, and Herod, who is a Jew, is all shook up. And furthermore, there will be this king Herod, who in alignment with Pontius Pilate, will be so troubled with the fact that there is this one that the Jews are viewing in various shapes or forms as an insurrectionist. He's got to be put to death because he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so Pilate will make absolutely certain that a placard will be placed over that cross, king of the Jews. And he does so under the sovereign reach of God because those opposed to Jesus want it to read, he said he claimed to be king of the Jews, but simply and succinctly it reads, king of the Jews, and God once again establishes his point with an exclamation based upon his purposes for you and for me. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. And goes on to say, and lead me to Calvary. James Wollen has a large collection of memorabilia that connect the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. He would have been King of England, gave it up to Mary the Duchess. You see, plans had been made for his coronation, but it never happened. Now what God promises, God fulfills. It happens. So in verse 13, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. God is in charge. Even in the midst of the chaos and the confusion of this world where people are looking for some way to be able to understand the meaning to life, the force awakens. Michael Zvigo is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he wrote an article wanting to try to understand what is it about the fascination of the Star Wars series. Can you identify what is it beneath the surface that drives this kind of loyalty? Listen to what he says. 
delve into the frustration with the present world as it relates to our own lives. It addresses a greater sense of purpose and meaning that somewhere there is something out there. It addresses a feeling of personal conflict in this world between good and evil. There's the conviction that this world isn't the way that it is supposed to be. There's this driving element in the movie Goers, the hope that things will one day be better than they currently are. There's the challenge in all of it, the urge to forsake all and get involved in the global struggle, you see. And meanwhile, this one born in Bethlehem promised even in this text five centuries earlier, goes to the cross and dies on Calvary, king of the Jews placed over his head. And then we read, and he shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. But then it leads to this fifth and final description. And there shall be a priest on his throne. Now he gets to that point to explain to the Jewish audience how you can have both priest and king and not cross over. And the council of peace will be between them both and your mind and my mind go back to what David of all people would say in Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You, speaking of this descendant of David, part of the family line, where the high branch is about to receive its ornament, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, and now he answers the question, how can a priest be king? Because he's not after the family line of Levi, but Melchizedek. And you can read about him in Genesis chapter 14. And now you fit together why they're looking for a king in Jerusalem and have to make their way to Bethlehem, the setting of David, and are introduced to the one who is part of that line of David. And we connect the dots to Jerusalem that Jesus did for us where king of the Jews is placed over his head on that cross. When Queen Victoria had just ascended to her throne, as was custom of royalty, you go on a yearly basis to hear the Messiah, the music. The biographer says she had been instructed as to her conduct by those who knew and was told that she must not rise. She's royalty. She must not rise when everyone else does at the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. So when the chorus was being sung and the singers were shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, we are told she became edgy in her seat. She sat with difficulty. It seemed as if she wanted to rise in spite of the customs of kings and queens. But finally, when they came to that part of the chorus, when with an incredible shout they proclaimed him king of kings, suddenly we are told that the young queen rose and stood, not with her head held high, with her head bowed low, as she would later say, as if I would take my own crown 
from off my head and cast it at his feet. And a secretary retrieves a book from a wastebasket. A book about the writings of Zechariah comes to saving faith, putting trust in Jesus, Messiah, leads others to faith in Jesus, Messiah, as the tree keeps branching out. Grace. You can't contain it. Grace. Has it penetrated your heart? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Let's stand together. Out of two verses, Father, in your profound wisdom, you've given us five descriptions of what everyone was to be looking for. But to this very day, people are still looking for answers. What we need to do is to embrace your answer plan found in Jesus and make absolutely certain we put our faith and trust in him. To recognize the significance of the highest branch and how all this fits together. So Father, if there is any in any of these services today that have not made Jesus Christ king of their lives, royal, Lord. I pray that he or she will confess sin, repent, and put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Work in that heart now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.